Hey, Richard. <laughs> Hi, Beth. Hi, Richard. Hi, Beth. So, I was looking for ideas for how to do a podcast, and to be honest with you, I was just looking for something that did not have to do with food. Yeah, I don't need to be made hungry again today. (laughs) So, I thought that we could do something that we probably should have done in one of our first few episodes, which is... um, So we think of science as this kind of magical thing, you know, it's like science knows, or even worse, science quote-unquote proves something, you know what I mean? We always say, science says this, science says that. What does that actually mean? Right. So I just thought we would talk a little bit about science, and kind of peel back the curtains of what science really is, and how it kind of works, okay? Cool, we can do this together. Yeah, let's geek in. That should be a theme music. I think that's a bad plan. Okay. You sure you want this to <laughs> Why are you so hyper? <laughs> okay. So, how science works is first, scientists will ask a question. Let's say scientists want to ask the question, what causes sunburn? Mm-hmm. Now, everybody knows what, well, I don't want to say everybody knows what causes sunburn. but Most people over the age of five or six know what causes sunburns. Yeah, it's the UV in sunlight, right? So let's say that they didn't know this and they wanted to find out what it was that caused it. So that's the first step is to ask a question. The second step is to do background research. So, in this case, we're looking for other papers that talk about sunburn and sunshine and stuff like that. Um, papers that may or may not have a all be the same conclusion. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. So, some papers might say that sunshine doesn't cause sunburns. It's aliens. Those papers would be quite ridiculous. Well, the next step that you need to follow is to construct a hypothesis. Sunshine causes sunburn, whereas regular light does not. We'll say that that's our hypothesis. It's correct, but we're still going to say that's our hypothesis, like we don't know. Nobody can see your air quotes. (laughs) Whoops. Okay. So the next step is to test an experiment. So you take a group of people, and you split them up into two groups. The control group and the experimental group. The control group gives us something to compare to. Theoretically, the control group should have no result, such as sunburn. Right? Or should have always results, depending on the type of experiment that you're you're doing. Right, but in this case, uh, there should 
not be any results because these people, the control group should not be uh, getting sunburned. So the control group you would probably put into a dark room um, and the experimental group you would take and put out into the sun. So anyway, the control group is important because you can't just put 10 people out into the sun and say, hey look, they got sunburned. That means that the sun causes sunburn. Well, you don't exactly know that necessarily because you don't have anything to compare it to. How do you know people don't get sunburned just from sitting in a dark room? You don't. So it's a really important to have a control group. If you don't have a good control, then your whole experiment is screwed. The fifth step is to go back and take a look at your experiment. Uh, is, is it working? Revise it, troubleshoot it. So let's say you notice that your people that you put in the sun are using sunscreen and that it's affecting the results. So you need to get them to stop using sunscreen. That could be something that you can troubleshoot. Um, another thing is that you may need to add a third group where instead of having them sit in the dark, you have them sit inside under a regular light. And the second to last step is analyze results and draw your conclusion. So you would say, okay, people who are in the sun get sunburned and people who are not in the sun do not get sunburned. So the final step is to communicate results. And that could be writing a scientific paper and publishing, or it could be speaking about it at a conference or something like that. So all of that that we were just talking about is the scientific method, all right? That's the stuff that you learned in uh, middle school. The most important aspect of this whole process, arguably, is, that is peer review. And this happens after you've communicated your results. Right. When you communicate your results, you are first going to do it by giving it to other scientists. And a good scientist won't even present his results to the public until after the peer review process is done. When this doesn't, isn't done correctly, we get issues. A lot of... Famous studies uh, are famous because they had flawed results, and there's a great item ruins everything on this. Mm -hmm. Now, when you go through the peer review process, this is when you have other scientists take a look at your paper, see if they can see any flaws with your experimental design, with your control groups, or if they can come up with any alternative explanations for your results that you'll want to go back and double check on. Yeah, they might say that people were sunburned because of aliens. They may say that. I, I dare you to prove that it didn't happen. <laughs> but, you know, you, you're gonna try. They may also say that people got sunburned because Richard Maple's body was so hot <laughs> when they were out in the sun that it burned everyone in its 20 mile radius. I mean, it's possible. You'll need to remove me from the group in order to make sure that that's not the case. Right. So the peer review process is super important. It's kind of like um, when you were in school and your teachers had you um, check your paper with another student before turning it in. Only well, on a much bigger scale. And much more rigorous because these are actual scientists that you're presenting it to, not Joey who picks his nose next to you. 
Hey, I don't pick my nose that much. <laughs> I wasn't talking about you. I was talking Leave about me Joey. Out of hey, Joey's a good guy. <laughs> oh, Joey is a theoretical person, by the way. I want to make that clear. <laughs> what do you have against Joey? We are making no attacks upon anyone named Joey. Just happened to be the name I thought of. Okay. Apparently she hates Joey's. <laughs> So now I want to talk about a super important aspect of science, which is the placebo and the nocebo effect, okay? Let's first define our terms, okay? A placebo effect is when a person thinks something is going to help them so they feel better just because they think it's helping them. For example, like, sometimes you'll see in movies that people take sugar pills to make them feel better, even though... They think it's going to make them feel better, even though it's just sugar pills. A nocebo effect is when a person thinks something's going to hurt them, so they feel worse just because they think so. So, let's apply this to our example from before. Most people know that the sun will cause them to have a sunburn. So, let's say you measure your results by asking people how much pain they're in, right? Participants who are out in the sun might rate the pain of their sunburn to be worse if they know that they were exposed to the sun. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, how do you fix this? The way you fix it is by running a blind study. This is where the participants do not know which group they are in. So, you'd have to go back and you'd have to fix your experiment to correct for the nocebo effect by possibly um, you put everybody in the same room but you shine different kinds of light on people. So you still got the people who are in the dark and you still got the people who are sitting in the light but without the UV. And then you have uh, sun lamps with UV light added to them. Right. And you don't know which kind of light you're uh, sitting under. Right. So the person does not have a perceived idea of how much they should be in pain. Mm -hmm. And neither should the researcher who is with them. Right. And that that touches on our next topic, which is another problem that could be happening with papers, is researcher bias. If a researcher were to base their results on, let's say, the redness of the participant's skin, in our example... Uh, the researchers could have a bias. You know, some people have more red skin naturally than others. They could say, oh, well, this person was out in the sun, and then judge them to have a more red color to their skin. You know what I'm saying? Whereas, let's say that uh, a person who is in underneath a light in the room, the researcher says, well, there's no way that caused a sunburn, even though they're all red, so they must just have red skin. Yeah, so it, it could confound the results. So to correct for researcher bias, you have a double-blind study, and that's where neither the experimenters nor the researchers know which group the particular participant is in. So if you bring a per- certain person to them and they look kind of reddish, the researchers do not know if this person has red skin naturally or if this person has red skin because they got sunburned. 
So that's a way of telling and correcting that. You would probably just give a number to the redness of skin before the experiment and then after the experiment as well and compare the results. That's a possibility as well. Okay, moving on. I want to talk about one of my biggest pet peeves. And we did touch on this. It wasn't last week. It was one of our first episodes, I think, where we talked about gluten. My biggest pet peeve with science ignorance is when people say that science proves this or science proves that. A lot of times if you see scientifically proven, quote unquote, or a headline that says science proves that life is better after 50 or something like that. It means that whatever you're looking at is almost certainly a fake. No, not necessarily, but it does mean that it's designed to get your attention or to sell you something. The thing is, science is constantly building on itself and improving. It's gathering evidence. It's not proving anything. There are a lot of different things that can go wrong in the scientific community, and new evidence is constantly, constantly coming to light. So the further along we go in our scientific endeavors, the closer we get to the truth. But the truth is we don't always know if the truth that we are finding is actually the truth. We can say this is the closest we've gotten so far. We can say that there's a lot of evidence for a particular issue, but we can't say that we've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that sunshine causes sunburn, even though it most it, likely does. There's a does. lot of evidence. It, it just does. We know it does, but we, we still can't say it's been proven. Right. But the, if the larger scientific community agrees on a certain issue, we can say that it's most likely true. This is why climate change is most likely happening. 97% of climate scientists believe that climate change is a fact and it's caused by humans. Mm -hmm. it's, it, that's a massive amount of scientific agreement. Right. Scientists don't agree that much on almost anything. I mean, scientists are a lot like politicians. They never agree. Mm -hmm. I mean... Our entire careers are built around tackling other scientists' careers and proving them wrong. Yeah, science is an extremely competitive field. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we make our money by saying, hey, you know that thing that everyone else agrees? It's wrong, and I just uh, have shown you why. Right. That's how we make money. And that 97%, those other 3%, that's not people saying, no, absolutely not. Science is, climate change is bad. No, those are people who are like, eh, we're not really sure. Right. That Those are people saying it might not be caused by entirely by humans. Right. And that's a pretty weak voice over the 97% of people who are saying, yeah, this is caused by humans, dudes. We're certain. Right. So now I want to talk about why certain studies are unreliable. And here's some factors that go into it. The first of these factors is sample size. If you've got 10 people that you're testing this sunburn, sunshine thing on, it's not going to be as reliable if you tested it on 10,000 people. The second one is confounding variables. So this is like that example where you notice that your participants were using sunscreen. That could seriously throw off your results. 
a confounding variable really can be anything that messes with your results that you didn't account for right another third thing is biased researchers so this will touch on quite a bit um one way to correct for that is to use double blind studies but it, it can't always be corrected for and the fourth one is if disagrees with the majority of studies. Now this one doesn't mean that the study is necessarily flawed. There's a lot of cases where people came out with new evidence that says, hey, I think what we, we've been thinking of so far is wrong. So just because it disagrees with the majority of studies doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but it does need mean that it needs to be looked at with a close microphone. With a close... A close microphone. Microscope. microscope. <laughs> okay. You need a closer microscope. I don't think... I don't think so. Okay. So, Love, would you like to talk about some examples of unreliable studies? Well... Some unreliable study was uh, the vaccine causing autism. Now, the guy who published this study actually made a lot of money off of corporations that were trying to essentially put uh, have a lawsuit on vaccine manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And these were people looking for money. And he did not disclose this to the journal that he published it in. Right. He didn't disclose that information, which you were required to do. Yeah, you're required to say, I have, uh, what is it? I was sponsored by, etc., etc., etc. Or you're required to say, I have a conflict of interest or something like that. Right. And that doesn't mean that you can't publish but it does mean that it needs to be looked at very skeptically. Right. Even today, that researcher is still going around trying to convince people that vaccines uh, cause autism. But uh, the flaws in his st uh, study included his uh, conflict of interest, a tiny, as puny sample size. He had only, what, 13 people? 12. 12 people in his study. Oh, and just to be clear... Um most of the people in that study, their parents were suing these, the same company. Yeah, most of the p parents were trying to sue that company for, to get money. Right, so his sample size was also... Incredibly biased. Yes. And it disagrees with the vast majority of scientific studies. Like from both From both autism researchers and vaccine researchers. Right, I mean... It's literally the only study that's, uh, that, well, at least he's the only researcher that has put out a study that, that will support this claim. It's ridiculous. Talk about it? Yes. Okay, so I found this study called, it's about kids and video games. It's out of Oxford. And this study basically finds that kids who play one hour or less of video games per day during a, a typical school week, um, do better in school than kids who don't play at all, also are happier. They also found that kids who played moderately had no difference between kids who did not play at all, and kids who played three hours or more had some detrimental effects, okay? 
I can think of at least one confounding variable that could be throwing off their results. My theory is that they didn't control for income difference. Mm. So the kids who didn't play at all. What she's saying is that the kids who didn't play at all probably were at a lower socioeconomic standing and couldn't afford to play more video games. Whereas the kids... Couldn't, right, couldn't afford the PlayStation, couldn't afford the Xbox, etc. Etc., etc. The kids, who, whereas the kids who played one hour of video game a day probably had not only enough money to uh, play video games, but also enough money to be a part of other things, such as sports and, you know, extracurricular activities. Well, another idea is that, you know, what kid plays less than one hour a day? They probably had some pretty involved parents. Which can make a big uh, difference. Anyway, so that's a confounding variable study. Richard, would you like to talk about finding reliable sources, or shall I? Nope. Okay, so if you're like me... Why are you laughing? <laughs> what do you expect me to? Of course I want to talk about finding reliable sources. <laughs> Okay, so how to find reliable sources. This is something that I'm uniquely qualified to talk about instead of Beth because she can't. So, if you're like Beth, (laughs) some studies can be rather hard to sift through. (laughs) Now, finding reliable scientific sources is is as much an art form uh, and a talent as it is a, a learned behavior. Now, Wikipedia... We've all been had rammed down our throats for the entirety of our lives. It's a great place to start, as it can point you to other resources, but it's not a reliable source in of it in and of itself. Now, the reason for this, which most teachers actually don't seem to talk about at all, is because just about anybody can go onto Wikipedia and make edits. Now. Wikipedia, as an organization, is a lot better at fact-checking their sources. But even so, anybody can actually go uh, onto Wikipedia and request an edit to a page. Now, the sources that are listed at the bottom of Wikipedia can be very helpful, though. And you can also give you great points to Google. Now, articles from well-known newspapers and media outlets can be helpful. Government sources are a lot more reliable than those, but you need to be careful with both. Any article must cite other reliable resources, such as journal articles. Especially journal articles. Right, especially journal articles. A journal article published in a reputable journal, like the Journal of Science, Journal of Nature, um, Journal of Health and Medicine, these are... Is there a Journal of Health and Medicine? Yeah, there is. Oh, okay. I thought you just made that up. The General of Well-Being and Peace. I don't know. <laughs> journal of there Well-Being so and Peace. There are so many journals. I love that Journal of Well-Being and Peace. It's a great journal. Now, <laughs> watch there actually be a Journal of Well-Being and Peace. And so, one of our readers like emails us and say, why are you disrespecting the Journal of Well-Being and Peace? <laughs> that would be great. Oh, did I just call them readers? <laughs> I think I just called them readers. I don't think you understand how podcasts work. Apparently <laughs> not. Um, anyway, uh, your journal articles are going to be your one-stop shop. These are your primary sources, and they are excellent. They are the most peer-reviewed sources. These are the most reliable sources. 
They can be rather hard to sift through if you are someone like me, which is why I usually, when I'm looking for sources, is I will try and find uh, newspaper articles that this journal topic, and if I can find mm-hmm. more than one that generally agree, then I can be like, okay, this is probably an accurate representation. Right, absolutely. Um, and, th- and that is great if, uh, like Beth, you're not very scientifically minded. Meanwhile, I can just go and read our scientific journal articles and, you know, make have it make sense to me. So you can also ask me, you know, whether or not something is reputable. I'm happy to provide that service. For a low, low price. For a low, low price of one... Well, it depends. Are you male or female? <laughs> Never mind. Let's keep it PG. <laughs> but anyway, are we done? We're done. Finally. Geek. This has been such an ordeal. <laughs> One, two, three. Geek, Geek out. out.